We're in Matthew chapter 18, verses uh, 15 to 20. You may be familiar with this passage. If not, you will be by the time we're done. Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is God's word. I'm going to pray so I don't mess it up. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray you'll move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, that you will speak and teach the words and the lessons that we need to learn, whether those be of comfort or conviction. Pray that you will change us from the inside out and you will lead us to the only place where hope and joy is found, and that is the cross. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we have been uh, examining the uh, different discourses of Jesus, and this is the fourth of five kind of discourses in Matthew. He's a teacher. He organizes his gospel like a teacher easy to memorize, structured in a particular way. And it's, by discourse, I mean it's a, a section of concentrated teaching on the kingdom of heaven. There's five. This is the fourth. Matthew 18 is the entire discourse, and it's important to read these verses in the context of that entire chapter. Typically, these verses are kind of taken out of chapter 18 and used in different ways, often wrong ways, uh, but they need to be understood in, inside the whole chapter of what we said last week, what we'll say this week, and then next week. But Jesus is spending chapter 18 talking about and speaking about Christians as children. He's not talking about children per se, though he uses it, a, a child as a metaphor. It's about Christians as children and really the church as a family. And that's really important to remember the church as a family. We talk about the church being a family, often we say it's a family of families, and it helps us understand how we are to engage with one another as a community. The church is supposed to be a very unique community. There's supposed to be no other community like it in the world. It's a community that begins here, but it's really an in-between spot, if you will, that holds us as we wait for our time to be with the Lord in eternity as his family. So Jesus here is going to reveal how we are supposed to engage with one another. And he has up to this point not only commanded us to care for one another, but also to protect one another and to even pursue one another. And today, Jesus commands us to confront one another about our sin. Now the process, and I'll use that term lightly, but there's a process that's described in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And this has served the church for many years. I mean the church historically as somewhat of an outline for what is called church discipline. And 
You may have heard that phrase before. That may be a new phrase to you, but the concept of church discipline and really the idea of discipline at all, but church discipline or corporate discipline carries with it a pile of kind of negative baggage. And the reason is because a lot of that comes from people misinterpreting, misapplying, and mishandling this particular text. And it has been misused by pastors, misused by congregants, misused by churches, misunderstood, ignored, all these things. I prefer to use the word confrontation because of those kind of negative connotations attached to uh, discipline. But the negative kind of baggage attached to that word uh, is as a result of people, not a result of the Bible. What I mean is the word discipline is biblical. The word discipline is good. The word discipline is throughout the Bible. It talks about self-discipline, talks about mutual discipline, talks about here church discipline. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 6, that quoting an Old Testament passage, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's family language. Discipline is loving. And as a child, we don't think it is. We think mom and dad are mean. We think they're cruel. We think they're unfair. We think they enjoy. They're kind of sadistic, disciplining us. And I'm not trying to dismiss those who have been abused, but we'll talk about healthy, biblical discipline. Kids don't like it. Parents don't love it, but they appreciate it. They understand its importance and its value. And if you were disciplined well as a child and you have children, you probably thank your parents and understand them a little bit better. But this idea of discipline is embedded in a text that's bookended with several things. It's been preceded by passages speaking about the seriousness of causing others to sin. Right before this passage, we have the idea of the importance of pursuing a lost sheep who is sinning. And then it ends, we'll see next week, with forgiving that sheep when they are found or restored. So we would do well to view church discipline, regardless of kind of the baggage, if we could just for a second take whatever experiences we've had negative or ideas we have that may not be biblical, let's just assume they may not be biblical or the experiences may have not been righteous. Kind of put those aside for a second and view discipline and confrontation less as this punitive process, just a means to punish, and more as what we'll call a, a paternal pursuit, a family pursuit. I believe that discipline, confrontation, is an essential part of our lives together as a family of faith. It's necessary. It's valuable. But if, for a second, will be honest that this passage, though given to protect families, it's given to protect the family. This passage, more than any other, perhaps in Scripture, has been used to de destroy families, more than any other. And that's why, as a pastor, as a church, we have to be very careful in how we talk about it, and even more careful in how we employ it 
the abuse that has been used and justified by using this passage has caused many churches and pastors to abandon the practice altogether and just say, well, church discipline never works out. It's just bad. It always hurts. There's no good in it. So they don't even talk about it. They don't employ it. And I would argue that, as you would with any family, that the abandonment of church discipline is just as bad as the abuse of church discipline. And so we have to avoid both extremes. You know, the church can become awesome. And remember, the disciples were arguing about who was great. You know, the church can become great. Great in every measure. And actually... miss out on the holiness that our great God requires. Like we can grow big and do great things, but if we're not the holy people he requires, it's meaningless. It's all for naught. A family or a church that's only comforted and never confronted is unhealthy. You need both, but a church that's only comforted, a family that's only comforted, and never confronted, is unhealthy. I believe that without confrontation, there can't be purity. Without purity, there can't be strength. The Bible teaches us that we are made in the image of God. Okay, So just get this picture. We're made in the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2, we are designed like mirrors to reflect God's awesomeness, to reflect and display who God is and and his power, and his grace, and his generosity, and all these things. And then Genesis 3 happens, and that mirror is shattered by sin. And so the image is still seen a little bit, but it's deformed, right? Like like looking at a cracked mirror, like it looks weird, but I can kind of make out some things. That's what sin has done to us. It doesn't remove the image of God, but it's deformed it in our reflection of it. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus redeems us, right? He comes and restores us, and he, and he rebuilds our mirror, if you will, spiritually speaking, but we're still in the flesh. We're not going to be fully restored until we're with him, but right now we are righteous in his eyes and in his heart as, as we stand covered by the blood of Jesus. We are saved, we are redeemed, we are adopted, but we still struggle with sin. We still struggle to believe those promises, and we will always struggle to believe those promises. And so as part of the redemption, God has brought us, adopted us into his family. And the family is to help one another conform to that image more and more. That's the purpose of the family. One of the purposes of, we're to build up together. We understand why there's like 50 plus one another commands. Love one another. Serve one another. Confess to one another. Help one another. Like Those are to conform us to the image of Jesus. I believe that confrontation has to exist as part of a gospel-saturated church. But the truth is, it needs to be part of our culture and not just the the break-the-glass nuclear option button when sin shows up. We have to have a culture that is characterized by the willingness to give and receive confrontation, the willingness to discipline each other. To say hard words to each other for the purpose of holiness and godliness. And oftentimes we only talk about it as like, oh, there's sin. Now we need to enter this process of discipline. Like if the only time you ever confront your children about 
their struggles or, or, or their issues or, or their temptations and sin is when they have just majorly screwed up, then you're not disciplining your children in a way that's godly. If it's a spank as the only thing you have, you've already lost. I, I likened it last service to the idea of telling your wife she's beautiful, right? And if you often are telling your wife, like, yeah, you're beautiful. Man, you look good. <clears throat> and it's like all the time. That one time she asks you, how do I look in this? Eh, I'm not, not a big fan. She's not going to be hurt by that. Why? Because you 95% of the time told her she's awesome, and now she you can receive that one negative thing and understand that's from someone who loves. But if you've never said that, you're like, dang, that looks bad. She's like, you never call me beautiful. I'm always ugly, right? But that's because you haven't built in. So we need comfort and encouragement and love, but also hard words often, not just one time. It is a grace. I believe discipline and confrontation is a grace of God to help us fight sin, to help us believe more deeply in the gospel, to help us mature together in Christ. If you don't, we're not catching my agenda. I believe, we believe, the church believes it's loving to confront a sinning brother or sister who is hurting themselves or others through their sin. If I did not love you and you did not love me, if I do not love my family members, I will say nothing about their sin. Really, I won't care enough. But if I have the courage to say something to you, that says something about what I believe about you. Hopefully, that I love you. Galatians 6.1, using family language, Jesus, uh, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This says, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. So we have a responsibility to confront one another, but it must be approached in the right way. We have a responsibility to help conform one another, to help restore one another, to help really protect one another and warn one another, but it must be approached in the right way. It doesn't take much to realize that the necessity for discipline is obvious in a family or in a church. Sin is there. The necessity for it's obvious. The motivation is supposed to be love. The goal is supposed to be restoration. The process is really messy, though. But the result is and should be the purification of the individual or of the church or both. But it's all predicated, I believe, on this First point, preparation. Preparation to confront is essential. Confrontation that is going to be truly restorative requires much prayer, much counsel, much study, much wisdom, and that is to avoid what has been commonly referred to as spiritual abuse, or just unnecessary hurt. Essentially, we're praying for one thing, and it's the very thing that Jesus began to talk about at the very beginning of chapter 18, humility. Humility. 
One commentator noted that it's hard to accept the rebuke, even a private one, but it is even more difficult to administer one in humility. As we approach and consider, before we even approach, as we consider to approach someone and to confront them about what we believe is sin, whether they're hurting themselves or hurting others, we must do and believe what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Notice the word all appears in there a lot. And that is because what gets us to a place of humility is recognizing that Jesus died for the person we're confronting and the person who is confronting. He died for us. In other words, we are sinful. We are broken. Oftentimes when we see someone in sin, I think our flesh immediately swells up with pride. Oh, at least I'm not screwed up like that. At least I'm not making that mistake. At least I'm not weak. You may not think it intentionally, but it's there. A lack of humility is our natural disposition. Pride is our natural disposition. Compassion is not. Humility is not. When the love of Christ controls us, it is because we have seen the depth of our sin and His love is so big that it dictates everything we do. Before I can confront another child of God, I must become a child of God. And that's more than childish thinking. That is what we talked about last week, this idea of assuming a position of dependence upon God. That before anyone else needs confrontation, I need confrontation. Before anybody else needs to confess, I need to confess. I need forgiveness. And as I move forward, even considering confronted, I need wisdom because I'm going to screw this up. You know why I pray every Sunday? We pray so I don't mess it up? Because I'm serious. I understand my flesh well enough to be able to screw up what I say, what the Lord wants to say. Assuming a, a childlike disposition as we consider approaching, we pray for wisdom, we pray for gentleness. We pray that God will reveal to us the right words, the right time, and the right way to say anything. The right words, the right time, and the right way to say anything. It all begins with preparation. It begins with time with the Lord. Bearing your soul before the Lord before you dare try to minister to somebody else's. And if that is done, if you pull out that log, then you have a responsibility to confront, not just opportunity or responsibility, but not until you're prepared. How often when someone is confronted, they say, oh, well, you're so worried about my yard, why don't you clean up yours? To that, we can humbly respond, you're right, I'm a hypocrite often. And I have gone before the Lord and asked His forgiveness often, and I will today, tomorrow, and the next day, and so I'm coming to you humbly as a brother who is just as broken and sinful as you are. 
but it goes from that preparation stage to what this process starts off with where a personal confrontation does occur at some point. A family that's truly committed to one another's holiness and not just our happiness. Right? I just want you to be happy, so I won't say anything. I'm more concerned about the holiness than I am the happiness of my brothers and sisters. But when we're committed to one another's holiness, we're also committed to one another's dignity. And that is why I believe Jesus begins saying that any kind of confrontation always begins with a personal one-on-one interaction. Stay out of the process. Oh, we're entering a process. No, no, no. Just don't worry about process. This is just, I'm going to protect the dignity of my brother and sister who has wandered or who is sinning. I just want to talk to them one-on-one. No one else. It says, if your brother sins against you, scholars would argue that, that against you ought not be there. It's just really sin, but it certainly could be a sin against you. It could be a sin against someone else. But go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Personal one-on-one confrontation is simply loving and it's protective. And even though the Bible says it's wise to counsel with others about, okay, what's the right thing to say? What are the right words? What's the right way? When? We must be very careful about what we share before we confront with others. Because there's a fine line between sharing and gossip. And you may actually threaten the dignity of that individual as you attempted to find the right way to say it. Remember, know that your flesh is weak. As much as your spirit's willing, your sharing could certainly end up exposing and ruining the dignity of this individual. But the phrase, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, reveals the whole purpose is restoration. It's not punishment. It's not just, yeah, you're bad. Be good. It's restoration. It's This is harming you. You're on the edge of a cliff. Like if you really believe that sin is bad, if you really believe that sin is destructive, no matter what form it takes, then you don't want people to engage in it. It's loving to tell them to stop. Unfortunately, though, a culture of humble speakers, humble confronters, will not help any church if we're not a family in a church full of humble listeners. The Bible didn't talk much about listeners. It talks a lot about the confronting, and I think we need to talk briefly about the listening. I think oftentimes when someone confronts us, our flesh wells up. When we receive hard words or hear hard words, we automatically get defensive. I've used this example often when, you know, I, I walk home or come home, walk home, drive home, I walk in, and my wife says to me, you're always late. Immediately, I'm like, boop, always, not a good word. I was not late yesterday, nor was I late the day before. Therefore, everything you just said, I'm defensive, and you are wrong. Prepare for the guns to fire back, right? Or, and again, I've said this before, like you leave a mess in the house, which I never do, but suppose, hypothetically speaking, and she says, hey, you know, you're, you're leaving too many messes. The closet looks, I've gotten notes actually, like, hey, can I have a new roommate, right? It's like messy. 
She says, you're always leaving your stuff out. I will say, no, I didn't. January 3rd, I actually cleaned up everything. And so, you know, I'm walking in, and she's like a jujitsu ninja, like, what's And I'm like, well, yeah, because I'm defensive. I'm being attacked. And there's certainly words, she, and, she, and my wife has learned, like, okay, I need to, like, how can I say this? And pretty much every time it's a failure. But it has nothing to do with her. It has nothing to do with what she's saying, how she's saying it, the time she's saying it. It has to do with my own heart. Very rarely, when someone speaks your hard word to me, maybe you're different. But me, very rarely, I'm like, thank you. God be praised that you revealed that to me. Because now I recognize my fit. No, it's not what first comes out. It's maybe, at best, silence. At worst, it's like, whatever. What about you? We're not humble listeners. We listen to the words and go, nope, I don't care about the heart behind that. I don't care that my wife's insecure that she doesn't know when I'm going to be home. I don't care that she feels totally you know, disrespected that she cleans the house constantly and I mess it up regularly. I'm not hearing the heart. I can't possibly believe that uh, you know, a friend would never say such things. You realize that's not biblical? Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. My wife is my best friend. And she's given me some good wounds. Faithfully so, right? Occasionally I give her one, but it, you know, she's less sinful than me, so it doesn't work out as well. But do we believe that do we believe that faithful are wounds of a friend? Or are we immediately dismissive, like, you're going to come attacking me? Like, really? Truth is, some of us, many of us, are not humble enough to confront it all. And I think most of us are not humble enough to receive a confrontation. I believe if we had a church was truly ready to receive confrontation, truly ready to live as family ought live, as the Bible describes us, this would be our prayer, Psalm 141.5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head, and let my head not refuse it. Can you imagine what a church would be like if we could receive one another's confrontations like that, as broken as they are, as insufficient to express perfect grace as they are, if we could all approach confrontations that way, let me receive it. I believe the depth of love in our church is going to rise and fall with the depth of humility that exists in a giving and receiving of confrontation. We've got to start listening for the heart behind the words. Especially for someone, we, we realize how difficult it is for someone to confront another person. And again, I'm talking abuse aside. Just 
believe all things, hopeful things, abuse aside, the, the willingness to risk a relationship, the willingness to say those hard words that are going to, to hurt, the willingness to expose yourself a little bit, will also caution us as we go into our personal confrontations or consider them. Notice that it says, if your brother sins against you, not if your brother just bugs you. Right? Whether the sin is actually against you or someone else is really irrelevant. What is relevant is that you are actually confronting something that's sinful. Doesn't mean there's never any other kind of confrontation. Doesn't mean that our relationships require like, you know, that really bugs me. We stop. Every time my wife brings up something, it's not like, oh, here's another sin. It's more like, you know, it's kind of irritating. Can you like eat with your mouth closed, please? You know, it's little stuff. So those happen in relationships. And we're talking about this. We're talking about what's biblical. We need to make sure that we're confronting sin. And it's not just a moment of sin. It's not like, okay, sin hunter, where's the sin I need to confront? It's a very obvious practice of sin. That someone is living in such a way that's in contrary to Christ's commands. And his commands are very clear. We're not just to confront the imperfections of character in people that we don't like or enjoy that disappoint us. Some of those need to be confronted, but not in this way. Jesus didn't say, if your brother irritates, bugs, disappoints you, go and tell them their sin or their fault. He said, if your brother sins, tell them their fault. So as we confront, make sure that it's personal, private, and it's actually biblical, which implies you're going to have to know what Jesus' commands are. But eventually, goes beyond personal, becomes what I'll call a private confrontation, a small group. If the brother refuses to listen to a personal confrontation, assuming that they are sinning in a way that needs to be confronted, we're to take one or two others with us, like a small group. And I will begin by saying the fact that there is a second step demonstrates a loving patience. And it characterizes the whole kind of pursuit that's going on here. We don't just immediately reject our brother when they just say, no, I'm not changing. We choose to keep following as they continue to wander. We trust that the Spirit is working, and we try again, and we try again, and we try again. That's what love is. Love isn't, you're screwing up. What? I don't care. Well, see you later. That's not love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Let that characterize your confrontation. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And after I confront, if they don't refuse, I'm going to believe that they will. I'm going to hope that they will. I'm going to endure when they don't. Because I love them. So love is patient. 
But I think there's another piece of this that we maybe overlook sometimes. And it's the fact that we might wrongly be confronting. And having a couple other people come alongside of you helps you with some perspective. Because the truth is, you could be making a mountain out of a molehill. And brothers come along and help brothers in terms of like, well, there's some pressure, some collective pressure as our friends come along and, and, and you got two or three there. And okay, guy, this is, we're serious. But there's also some perspective that's gained when you can't get two or three people to agree to do that with you. Where they basically say, hmm, I don't know if this is worth this kind of confrontation, man. I think you might just be bugged at something that's really disappointing maybe and maybe even irritating, but I, I don't know if this is going down this path. Sometimes we need counsel to ensure that our confrontation is actually necessary. And the truth is, if we cannot get one or two others to help us agree to confront, then they either say something about our family that's fearful and not courageous to confront, or it says something about us in that you are confronting something that maybe shouldn't be. So having that group, you know, again, it's not just, okay, systematic process. It's like, what's going on here? Always checking our hearts of what, what is actually the, the motivation behind this. But again, assuming that Jesus does, that they refuse to listen, there is another step. He teaches that what begins as personal and, and continues as private eventually is going to become public. In verse 17, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, two or three gathered, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile or tax collector. Remember, viewing church discipline less a process, more as a, a family pursuit. You can see this then as another opportunity for repentance, another opportunity for restoration, not just another level of spanking. There's hope in it. The church is not told just so they can shame the person. The church is informed so that you have not just one, not just three, a whole family of people going, we love you, man. Don't go there. That's a cliff. It'll lead to your death. It will lead to destruction for you and those you love. A whole family. It doesn't say tell it to the church and they kick them out. It says tell the church, see if you'll listen. See if you'll listen. Now obviously there's some formality here because you have to be protective of dignity a little bit. And you want to ensure that what is actually said is true. And so this is where I believe the elders are required to get involved. But you'll notice in the first couple, the elders are not necessarily involved. If we're truly a family, truly a priesthood of believers, truly a group of people shepherding one another, then 99% of church discipline shouldn't necessarily involve the pastors. They may be involved for counsel. They may be asked to come in because people feel ill-equipped. Okay, but it's not required. I think here where it comes required. Most of the discipline should be happening organically in the community. I believe when you tell it to the church, there's a couple things. I think the first part of that is telling it to the elders. And the elders 
do their due diligence to figure out, okay, what's actually happened here? Has this gone through a process before they just go, hey, this has happened? I think the elders bear a special responsibility to shepherd the church through this. And they are responsible in many ways, unlike the church is responsible, to bind and loose based on the authority of God to determine whether someone's repentant or not. That's one of the hardest things as a pastor, perhaps the hardest thing. The elders have a responsibility in these kind of situations to determine whether an individual is repentant. And that's not like mapped out on a chart. That takes conversation. Like these processes come. I really wish confrontations were like, hey, you're sinning. I am. I'm sorry. All right, let's go. And you read like five, you know, verses here, and you're like, oh, it's just like boom, boom, boom. It works out. No, they're long. They're messy. It takes patience and time and long-suffering. And I need you to understand that your elders take Hebrews 13 very seriously. Here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I hope you understand that when we talk especially about issues like church discipline. I realize with great weight that I will have to give an account to the Lord for your soul, unlike you'll have to give an account for mine. I will stand before the Lord for every counsel I have given, every sermon I have preached, every way I've organized the church and decisions, and I will give an account. You have your own accounting, as we all will, but it's different. There's not a verse like that for the members. There's a verse like that for the leaders and the elders. So I don't take church discipline lightly. We study, we pray, we counsel, and we are slow, but we make decisions and we move. And that movement for the elders, if the man refuses or the woman refuses to listen, is to announce it to the church. And you ask us, what does that mean? Does that mean on a Sunday morning you, you announce it? Does that mean on a small you know, um, group of members you, you share what's happening? Does that mean you do it online? What does that mean? So we talk about that because guess what? It doesn't say. The church means assembly. And our practice up to this point has been public on a Sunday morning. And before we ask why public like that, I will say what that tells us is this, is that the actions of discipline are not the elders against some member. It is a church discipline. We are all involved in it. We are all engaged in it. It's a family decision. Family comes to agreement about it. Family proceeds together. Family is sharing in a covenant with one another. They are sharing in and participating in discipline with one another and on for one another. And that's important to keep things accountable. So as a member of our church, or someone is invested in, you haven't signed in the dotted line, but you are an invested member of the church, formally or informally, know this, that you have the responsibility to understand, first and foremost, the purpose of church discipline. You have a responsibility to understand this text. 
You also have a responsibility to understand the process of church discipline. What does this look like? And then if it actually occurs where we publicly say, Joe Blow has left his wife, he has committed adultery, he refuses to repent, he's abandoning his children and his family, you have a responsibility to understand the proceedings of all of that. What has led up to that point? What has happened? I'm inclined as I'm processing how those take place to even do it as a small members meeting, and here's why. I think this kind of decision requires conversation. I think it requires much less of the elders making an announcement and walk away as much as it does making an announcement and let's talk about what's happened and engaging in a family talk so that we all understand what's occurred. I also have great appreciation for it being public, though. First time I ever saw that done was at Antioch Bible Church by Ken Hutcherson. I remember sitting there, and he stood up after the sermon was all done, and he said, we've got some family business to take care of. I'm like, what is this? It's a financial meeting? What? And he just announced, name, this is what's happened, and this is what your charge as a church is to do. I was blown away. And I think we all have different reactions to that. And some people go, oh my gosh, that's so cruel. That wasn't my reaction. My reaction was, this church takes sin very seriously. And this church takes family and love very seriously. I think sometimes when, when you proclaim that, some huge values come from that. First and foremost is to convey to the person who's unrepentant because they know what's been announced with their name, and we have done this once in the history of our church at Damascus Road. It conveys to that person that there's a weight to your sin, that your sin has effect beyond just you. It influences a ton of people. Right before I became an elder, I made a list as just a practice of all the people that would be impacted by my sin. You should try that at some point. It's pretty sobering. It's not just you. It's your marriage. It's your children. It's your grandchildren. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. And then assume the position of a pastor, and it spreads. I think sometimes saying it publicly also gives the church, believer and not, attender or member, the idea, the understanding of their responsibility to encourage that person to call them back to repentance. But I think it also protects the witness of the church. One commentator said, when the church disciplines Christians, she will more effectively disciple non-Christians. We don't have a responsibility to judge the world. We have a responsibility to judge one another. As we remove those big beams out of our eyes, we have a responsibility to protect one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to talk about one another's sin. And if we truly believe the gospel, if we truly believe in the transparency that I can talk about my sin and not be rejected but be forgiven, then we'll be okay. But it's possible, Jesus says, that person won't listen to the entire family. That is the third, like you announce it and you hope they listen. 
You're praying for them to listen. But it's possible, Jesus says, that they will not listen. Now, again, this is in the context of Matthew 18. So next week, what we're going to hear preached is forgiveness. The idea of, I don't care what the sin is. Think of the worst sin you can think of, right? If that person is confronted personally and then privately and then publicly and they repent, praise God, we rejoice. They may have to enter into some restoration process, more than likely, but we rejoice and we share that publicly. This middle section that Jesus is talking about is the likelihood or at least the possibility that they will not repent. Next week is when they do and the difficulty it is for us to forgive. Man, they, are you kidding me? They did this and this and, yeah. And Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive? Again and again and again if they repent. But it's possible they won't listen and so scripture commands a final step, which is really difficult for us personally and culturally. We're to treat the unrepentant person as an unbeliever, pagan or tax collector. Pagan was used to describe Gentiles who are unclean in the eyes of Jews. Remember, Matthew's writing to Jews. Tax collectors in the eyes of Jews were like worse than prostitutes who abuse children. It's like a worst of worst. It's like you want to think of a sinner, tax collector. That's the iconic sinner. So they are, in a very real way, excluded from the fellowship. Traditionally been called excommunication, contemporarily called shunning. And again, I could preach three sermons on this to explain what that all means, but the reality is this. They are excluded from enjoying the Christian community that they've already wandered from and have already declared they're not a part of. They basically have declared, I'm not a family member and how they act, and we're just declaring that, that's right, you're not a family member, and we agree. And any form of fellowship you have with that person is in an effort for them to repent. It's still expressing love, but it's saying, we want you to love Jesus and come back to the family. And we think, well, that's not going to do any good. That's just mean. Well, here I think is the reality. If that person truly experienced and viewed the church as family, it will hurt. You don't want to hurt them, but it will hurt to lose that. And they will desire to return. They will desire to enjoy what is the beauty of Christian community that is all loving, all forgiving, all confessing. But if for them, if the church for all of us, for you, is just showing up on a Sunday, just a club to be a part of, it won't matter. But when you lose family, it should hurt. When you leave family, like my hope is not that everyone stays here and never leaves. I hope we send people. As we send people to go different places, Acts 20, right? Paul left Ephesians. He was crying. Crying because he loved his family. He was with his family and knew the family. I want tears to be shed. Hard to leave because we have deep relationships. Hard to leave on mission and hard to leave because of sin. Hard to leave. And that can only be possible if we truly are family. If we truly say to one another, you know what? I want you to be in my business. 
I want you to watch my life and I want to watch yours and I want to confront you and I want you to confront me. As we close, I know some of us are tempted to argue that this is not how Jesus would act. Ignoring the fact that this is exactly what Jesus commands. Right? Well, Jesus would do that. That's just dumb. Jesus is the one. These are Jesus' words. He's the one telling us to do this. He says, very clearly, gives his endorsement, his empowerment, and his expectation for this kind of confrontation. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, two or three agree, It'll be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Two of the most abused passages in Scripture. So let me clarify what those don't mean. Jesus is not saying that if you can get two or three people to agree with you, you can do whatever you want. Just people employ that seriously. It's like, you know what, you need some better Bible. Um, Or... Jesus is not saying, well, two or three are gathered together. They're the churches, right? It's really sunny. I'm going to go golfing with two of my buddies, and we will have church on the greens, right? Oh, I'm just have church on my hike out with my buddy. It doesn't work. Nice, nice try. It's not what Jesus is talking about. It's amazing how it's been taken out of the context of a church discipline experience. On the contrary, Jesus is, in this passage, as he ends here, upholding the authority and the responsibility of the local church to deal with unrepentant sin in the family. We must be humble enough to confront one another. And I say that for two reasons. One, we need to lead with humility, otherwise it will just be destructive. But I also say that in terms of being humble enough, we have to deny ourselves the pride to believe that we know better than Jesus. Jesus says confrontation is necessary. Jesus says and commands that we confront one another in our sin. Don't for a second be prideful enough to say, oh, I know better than Jesus. It'll be better if I ignore this. It'll be better if if I abandon this practice. You need to be humble enough to trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about and that his word is true and that he goes with us as we do. He makes some real promises to people who are humble enough to confront. And I would say humble enough to receive confrontation as well. But we have his authority that we have his support, and that we have his presence. And even though our flesh wants us to believe that this is anti-Jesus, it's quite the opposite. And an individual or a family or church that embraces humble confrontation and discipline expresses and proclaims its belief in Jesus' authority 
It's belief in the need for Jesus to rescue, which is simply this. You believe sin is serious. You believe sin is destructive. If you don't think that you have to confront that a little bit of sin's okay, that a, a little bit of sin won't kill, you don't understand sin. For those who practice confrontation that's humble and biblical, proclaim their belief that sin is destructive, that it is unloving to allow their friends to continue in the sin, that you love them enough to expose yourself to ridicule and questions of motivation because you believe sin will kill and you want them more than anything to obey, not so they can be moral and God will love them because that is where joy is. And also, for those churches who will do the hard work of confronting and practicing church discipline, proclaims their belief in the power of Jesus to restore. Next week we will see Jesus can restore anyone. In the midst of all this discipline stuff, he restores our own hearts for the confronter and the confronted. Jesus is in the process of shaping all of us, of building us all up together. I'll close with a verse out of Ephesians 4, which declares, speaking of the church, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we speak the truth in love, we are built up in love. We bring it back to Jesus. We come to the table and the crucifixion, which is what the wine and the bread represent, is God's declaration that his hard words that you are more sinful than you'll ever admit. He confronts us with the most brutal in your face, death, to declare you are a sinner. And yet behind that cross is the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the restoration. The confrontation is the hard part. And we come to the table having been confronted with our sin, but we remember the joy of being forgiven the joy of a resurrection, the joy that, that God can take something that is hopeless and dead and nothing and bring it to life. Instead of believing that confrontation is going to result in your death, think about the life it's going to breathe in that individual who is now wandering, living in death. If you are a Christian, if you are a member of this church, as you come to the table, I want you to remember something. It's not that I want you to watch everyone as they take communion, but watch who's taking communion because this is the family that you're a part of. If you take communion with this family, it's a shared meal. You are taking responsibility for one another, to love one another, to receive one another, to confront one another. That's what this table's about. And if you're not a Christian, you're alone. And it's hard to do life alone. And I invite you to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sin, lived the life you should have, died the death you should have, was raised and offers you forgiveness for whatever you've done. If you would just believe 
and then we can receive one another together as brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. And I thank you for the grace of confronting each of us with our sin. And I ask that you'll do that now. And instead of us wandering, our minds wandering into all the people that we need to confront, Lord, I ask that you'll help us to really center on our own sin. Ask us to really think about the own confrontation that we need, Father. The humility that we require the love that you had for us and the forgiveness that you've given us, Lord, not because we're great, but because we're not. I pray you will help us to be a church that's humble enough to confront one another because we love one another, but also humble enough to receive that confrontation. I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your patience with us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.